This episode is a part of a special series devoted to a new edited book titled Social and Emotional Learning in Physical Education, Applications in School and Community Settings. Published by Jones and Bartlett Learning in cooperation with Shape America, the book is edited by Dr. Paul Wright of Northern Illinois University and Dr. Kevin Richards of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, it's available for fall 2021 instruction. The text will integrate well into physical education teacher education coursework, and it's a great resource for teachers looking to increase the focus on social and emotional learning in their classes. This special series is sponsored by the Physical Activity and Life Skills Group in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Northern Illinois University. Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm joined today by recently tenured professor, Dr. Michael Hemphill uh, from UNC Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. Uh, and he's here to talk to us about chapter 13 from the uh, new SEL book that's coming out. Uh, this one discusses sport, uh, sports-based youth development and SEL. Uh, Michael, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Risto. It's good to be back with you on the podcast here today. Thank you for doing this special series on the social emotional learning text that's, that's forthcoming. And I want to acknowledge Dr. Tom Martinick, a longtime professor of kinesiology at UNCG, who's my co-author on this chapter. Yeah, and, and you've been on the podcast a few times, actually, and uh, I always enjoy talking to you. And I, and I like this chapter. Uh, it's, it's partially because I'm looking into sport-based youth development in my own research and then talking about positive youth development and SEL. So uh, it kind of hit on all cylinders there. Uh, but can you, because you talk about sports-based youth development, it's inspired by positive youth development. Can you talk to me about positive youth development? What is it and how did it kind of lead to sport-based youth development? Yeah, yeah, thank you. We, we relate this to uh, the a positive psychology movement. Um, I think the chapter locates it around the 1990s uh, where um, it counters deficit-oriented perspectives. So deficit perspectives uh, to programming would focus and intervention on solving a problem that youth are experiencing. This could include things like uh, just having, being involved in gangs, being involved in drugs, uh, having poor academic outcomes, any range of deficits that are seen to put a young person on a, a negative pathway and inhibit their academic success. Uh, positive youth development emerged as a really an alternative line of thinking to suggest that all youth need opportunities to have positive developmental experiences and acknowledge that it is uh, expected that youth are going to experience challenges. And so really focusing on building up their internal and external developmental assets is a more appropriate approach than this uh, pathological focus on negative experiences and deficits, which, which can kind of narrow uh, how we think of them as a full, a full person who has potential to succeed. Yeah, uh, one of my old professors in, in my master's degree talked about positive youth development as the after-school programs in the 1950s, 60s was basically the bar was set low. It was like, hey, let's let's keep kids out of jail, and it was a it was a very right. low bar. <laughs> and then we started kind of yeah. talking about, hey let's try to build skills. Let's 
bring these students in and give them good experiences and make, you know, provide them opportunities. Um, so yeah. I, I like that description yeah. of kind of that change. And, and you do a good historical kind of summary uh, going back to what, where this stemmed from. Um, but one of the things that kept on jumping out at me was that sport-based youth development is really most effective when it's part of a holistic effort to benefit young people. So can you talk about how uh, PYD and sport-based youth development really work in, in that holistic uh, pattern? Yeah, I think uh, I appreciate your example and it really helps bridge this conversation to sport-based youth development. The, an example that comes to mind um, that I'm familiar with is this emergence of uh, in the 1990s of like midnight basketball in urban areas where uh, police departments opened up recreation centers at you know midnight hours to allow people in from the streets to play basketball. And the idea being, hey, they're if they're running the streets at midnight, they're getting into trouble, they're involved with gangs or something. So we bring them in off the streets and solve that problem. So sport-based youth development uh, provides a lot more holistic line of thinking that would suggest that we don't just need to distract youth from uh, being out on the streets or being involved in gangs, but we need to provide them with supports that help them understand how they can contribute to their communities, understand the various strengths that they have, um, that they can contribute to uh, their peer relationships, their uh, academic pathways, and so forth. So it's much broader than saying we want to focus on physical skill development or just focus on those deficit aspects, but instead thinking that uh, positive youth development is about developing a whole person. Um, and these are people who have strengths and inevitably have weaknesses. So focusing holistically on how can we help them navigate their environment and ultimately make positive contributions uh, to their communities in the long run, I think is the big picture goal of sport-based youth development. And then finally, I think the thing that makes uh, sport unique in this conversation, um, I think there's a debate, I'll say, about whether uh, sport-based youth development is its own thing or if it's just one example of positive youth development. Um, I think it's its own thing in part because sports is constructed as kind of a highly um, competitive, exclusive environment, and it offers a counter to that. That is, can be really inclusive of all people in a sport in a competitive sense, and it's uh, one of the rare contexts in which I think young people work together uh, in a way that is that can be framed as oppositional. Uh, but we can structure ways for them to learn how they relate to their peers in this competitive uh, sense. So it, in turn, being more more cooperative than what we think of as you know, competition, as we might see on uh, ESPN types of mm -hmm. sport experiences. Yeah, and it's interesting how you kind of describe the holistic effort and in that, you know, when you, when you talked about the midnight basketball uh, league, I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. Like, that would be a really cool thing to implement. And as, you know, if we look at it from like a researcher point of view, you know, in the very beginning of your research career, you're looking at a single item, right? So it's like, I want to run yeah. a midnight basketball league because it's going to be good for the community. And then you run it yeah. 
and I, in your chapter, you talked about how even Hellison said that his programming or any after school programming could only be a percentile change in the overall community. It has to be a bigger effort. So as you progress as a researcher, you start seeing like, oh, all of this is interconnected. I can't just run a one-off program somewhere and produce those results, write a research paper and say that it works. It talks about school and before school programs and, hey, what's the crime rate in that community and what's the educational support that community members get? It's not just, like you said, it's not just opening up the doors to a, to a gym at midnight to distract kids. Yeah, absolutely. And the reality, I think, I think of it is, is that it, all youth, no matter where they live and what challenges they face, need to develop the capacity uh, to navigate complexities in their life. Um, for people who live in underserved communities, that's often even more pronounced because they they may face additional challenges and they may also uh, have a shorter leash. Um, they're not going to get away with uh, some of the trouble they may find themselves in as, yeah. as youth will in, say, a more affluent community. Yeah. And so I think the positive youth development movement has been about giving kids these skills to make decisions uh, that will minimize the types of harm they'll experience if they find themselves in adverse situations and really uh, lift up and maximize the immense potential that these young people have to be leaders, to be contributors, and to navigate pathways um, towards success. But this really exists in a in an ecosystem, and any PYD program is a relatively small um, contribution. So I think there's a lot of thinking about how can uh, these programs be linked up to other positive experiences that youth are having. So can we involve parents in the program so that there's some coherence across the home and uh, program context? And can this be related to the values of the school so that those values can kind of be bridged and maybe have some transference uh, across those various contexts? So those are some of the future questions, really, that I think uh, researchers are continuing to explore in this SBYD context. So when we talk about sport-based youth development, it's oftentimes done in like out of school programs. So does this work in physical education? What, what like should it be executed in PE or should it be doing done in something like an after school or a community program? Things like um, that that you see in like Reach, for example, the program that we've run. Is that where it's supposed to be, or can it be executed in PE? So. It's a really good question. Um, most of the examples in the research and the practical examples that have been written about are in outside of school context, um, in part because those program those spaces provide some flexibility uh, for designing programs as you wish, whereas uh, in school programs are driven by standards often that might might prioritize sport-based youth development, but would also require you to prioritize other types of things and then be limited by things like the amount of time available and um, the class sizes and, and so forth. So out of school really gives you a appropriate SBYD context. 
at times. However, with this social emotional learning movement, as it's uh, over the past five years, it's really, it's just gotten louder and mm-hmm. bigger in physical education. And uh, Tom Martinick and I were reminded that, you know, this conversation isn't necessarily new. It has new momentum and it's a new framing around social emotional learning because uh, social emotional learning is talking about um, giving students self-awareness skills, self-management skills, relationship skills, and so on. And, you know, if you look at the sport based development literature, that's very consistent with what's been written about there is giving uh, youth positive internal and external assets to help them them succeed so so i believe that this conversation around social emotional learning and pe is quite consistent with sport-based youth development and therefore uh, in school physical education is a space where this is possible although i don't know that it's been uh been widely explored the final point i'd make on that and then maybe you can follow up because i'm not sure i'm fully addressing the question is um most physical educators who I have observed uh, have pretty broad autonomy to teach, to run their program as they see fit. Mm-hmm. And some folks will focus on, you know, fitness perspective. Some will focus on sport perspective. And many have the capacity to say, I'm going to focus on a SBYD type perspective. Um, so in that way, I think this does have merit for physical education, particularly in contexts where uh, youth may may need these types of skills, perhaps because they're not offered in other areas of the curriculum, then physical education has a role in stepping up and giving youth these positive experiences. And especially if the, if the school doesn't have an, a physical activity after school program. So where, where would right. they get that experience if not in PE? And I think the way you said it was that SEL has been louder and stronger, right, in, in the last five years. Because, you know, we've talked about in, in previous podcasts to this about how SEL isn't something new. Like Don Halson's talked about this humanistic point of teaching physical education for a while and, you know, for decades, and and I think it's interesting that you the way that you described it, it's just getting louder and stronger. And I and I would think that that's a good example of what actually is happening in SEL because we covered this in in our class this last semester at Mason. And when I talked about SEL and I talked about the Castle uh, uh, framework, some of the like I could see the confusion in some of the you know very mature teachers or pre-service teachers faces they're like isn't this just good teaching like building relationships being nice to kids and giving them opportunities to like to learn to be a leader and share and take turns and all like self-awareness and all these things and i'm like well yeah but it's just it's just not obvious to everybody right like so and i don't know maybe i'm going on a tangent here but I, i feel like it you know, for SEL there, for some, some teachers, it's so automatic. And for others, it's really something that they have to structure in to make sure that they're actually covering it. Yeah, yeah. And I think where one of the things that uh, SBYD has contributed to this 
conversation on SEL that's now growing is that we really do have to be intentional about integrating this into our instruction. And it's not enough to just say, to just say we we're already doing it. And this is kind of a natural part of the, the way that, um, that we teach. Mm-hmm. That may be true uh, because I've seen many a teachers who uh, they learn about SEL and then they realize, yeah, I've really been an exemplary uh, teacher in this regard all along. I just didn't realize it because it's a part of my value yeah. set. Yeah. However, we have a, you know, a long history in sport programming and in, in some in physical education of practices that can really exclude a lot of people based on their skill level, uh, sometimes based on gender and, and other factors. And sometimes prioritizing things like the development of leadership skills, for example, based on some narrow types of categorizations of who has potential to be a leader, when in fact I would argue that all students have potential to be leaders, although they may have different leadership styles. Mm -hmm. So I think this has really given us a chance to step back and say, how do we be really intentional of giving all students opportunities to develop these social-emotional skills? And how do we guard against that instinct of saying that uh, physical activity and sports are just so special that they're automatically going to convey these things um, because of that unique context that that we have? Um, So I think it's pushing us in the right direction uh, toward being more intentional in our pedagogy. So let's talk about sport because sport and SEL can be very opposite. You know, it's not that you know, sport automatically has SEL components. It can if it's done in a specific way. And you wrote about this in the chapter about separating this commercialization of sports from quality uh, sport-based youth development programming. So what what still needs to be done to kind of make this SEL and SBYD work together? Um, you know, a... One answer that I would I would say that isn't in the conversation in physical education would be for physical education to reclaim the space of uh, interscholastic sports. Hmm. Um, that sport sports programs are physical education programs. Uh, if they aim to give kids uh, life skills, that most most high school coaches would claim that that's what they're doing is helping these kids learn skills to succeed in life. Most of them say it's more about uh, developing them off the court than on the court and these types of things. Um, At least that's the rhetoric of commercial sports. Uh, That's physical education space, if you ask ask me. So uh, can we reclaim that space and think about it more inclusively so that if there are students who are skilled enough to play in a competitive sports league, then let's give them that opportunity and make that a positive experience. But can we have a broader portfolio of participation opportunities in school and out of school grounded in physical activity for all students? Um, You know, I, so I think that's a space that physical education um, should consider. So that, that's one thing, but we're, we're a lifetime away from that. Right. So um, the, the, the next space I think that uh, we're trying to move into is to say, how do we produce uh, programs that support teachers in implementing social emotional learning or SBYD 
in their instruction for those who are really going to be passionate about that. So let's support that work uh, to move the needle with people who want to do that. Uh, additionally, how can we provide some evidence basis uh, to persuade decision makers to give this some standing in physical education space. I, I feel strongly that physical education is well positioned in schools to be the, the centerpiece of uh, SEL kind of movement in the school building because it's very difficult for the other uh, core testing subject areas to really go all in on social emotional learning the way we uh, have this overemphasis on outcomes. Most physical educators can be a little bit more flexible. Um, so if we can demonstrate some success in teaching social emotional learning skills, I think we can give ourselves more relevance in, in the school space for those who, who want to move in that particular area. Yeah, and the, and the benefit we have with sport is, uh, I think Kathy Ennis talked about this in her Sport for Peace curriculum, is that it creates authentic, you know, struggle. It creates conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that, you know, you're you're trying to role play and you're like, hey, you get angry at this person and let's defuse the situation. It's, you know, you mm -hmm. fouled me really hard while I was trying to go for this layup and now I'm in your face. Okay, great opportunity to talk about SEL. Great opportunity to talk about conflict resolution. Um, and I think that, that mm -hmm. that's something that uh, we have with, with sports. And I think in, in PE, that's a little bit easier for us to maybe start into integrating SEL more than in math. Somebody might get frustrated, but a lot of, and I always pick on math because math was my least favorite subject. So for any math teachers out there, <laughs> I apologize for always harping on you. You're probably doing a great job. I just have avoided math uh, classrooms uh, as much as possible. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I completely agree. Though that's a that's an excellent point that these teaching moments are available. Uh, I think the relationship opportunities are available in sports because of the way it can break down communication barriers. For example, some schools are dealing with that as a diversity issue, uh, but students can relate to each other in different ways. So therefore there's different types of opportunities to develop relationships through physical activity context. If we can think about how to structure those. Yeah. So what are some aspects of like, what, what does a sport-based youth development program have to do if they're intentionally trying to facilitate SEL? What, what would that even look like? Mm. Yeah. Great question. So I think they're, uh, you, th there has to be intentional creation of a positive climate. Um, so making sure that people are physically and psychologically safe, respected, valued. Uh, when you talk about that, I think you're, you really have to be thinking about uh, equity and diversity issues um, and making sure that people's uh, background and their um, identities are really not only included but affirmed. Um, so sometimes I think we approach these programs with like an open door policy where we might say, hey, anybody who shows up is more than welcome here. We would love to have you here. But the context in which you're going to participate is defined in a narrow way. 
Mm-hmm. So that context might not be inclusive of someone who identifies as different than the main group of people who are there. So I think that's a space we should think about is like, do we have that open door policy where like, hey, you can show up or do we really have an inclusive policy that gives someone a rightful presence hmm. to, uh, to be there and be themselves in a particular space? So I think the climate really is important. I think there has to be some uh, facilitation of skill development uh, that goes beyond sports. So facilitation of life skills, but that is really integrated in the sport experience. So it's not just a peripheral type thing where we say, hey, let's, let's talk about uh, life skills at, at the beginning and end of class today, but then let's go play sports and you can just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. We don't have to think about that aspect. So is there some real integration uh, going on in there. Another piece that I'd add to that is um, elements of reflective practice, I think are important because the two comments I just made previously are just so dynamic. Uh, They can be different every day. Like I can, I could probably show up to a program one day and make everyone feel safe and welcome. And I could probably show up the very next day and say something that really isn't thoughtful or do something that I don't realize that makes someone feel unwelcome. Um, So really that reflective practice has to be constant and ongoing until we can get to a space where we're we're a little bit more naturally inclusive and thinking about integrating these things into our program. And I think the, you talked about having one, like going in one way and then going to play sport and having it be totally different. I don't, I don't remember where I, read this it was in a chapter somewhere but there's an example of a a school principal or a head of school who um who taught in england and he he was the head of school and you know when he was in his pe role uh the kids were really respectful to him obviously you know he had power over them in this position but then he was also a, a soccer referee and so he mm. refereed the school uh, soccer games and he said as soon as I cross the field like I cross that line and become a referee the disrespect that I see from my students who are yelling at me because I'm a referee because that's part of the game that you complain and you yell at the referee and he said, it's, it's completely different and there there has to be something that you know needs to change in the fact that you can be so respectful in a physical education environment because I'm your teacher, but when I'm a referee and I have a whistle in my mouth, do you start yelling at me and screaming about what my decision making is? So yeah, yeah, that, I mean that's really fascinating when we think about it—the uh, cultural context that we're operating in—and that's where I, 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 I think back to my earlier comment where I'm like, can we, can physical education reclaim that space so that at least uh in like a public school setting that it shouldn't be like that there should be a a level of respect and um environments that are educative for everyone if it's under a public education context Mm -hmm. you know if it's a corporate funded entity I, i guess they can do it as they wish but um we really have in my view allowed the public education resources to skew toward that example you just said where um there's some undesirable behaviors taking place in, in those 
spaces also serve a pretty narrow uh, number, a population of the student body yeah. of the different schools that you might observe these practices taking place. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. You wrote in here, sport engagement often becomes a moral experience. And I found that really interesting that you you related to that. Can you explain what, what you meant when you talked about that? Wow, that's a good question. Um, it, so I think what we were thinking about is that um, sport, you're making a lot of decisions in, in sports programs, uh, in sport participation, in terms of who's included, how are they included, uh, who gets to be a leader, um, what roles the people get to serve in, um, how are those decision made, decisions made on how those uh, roles are determined, uh, is there differences in how a person is included based on their gender, uh, their size, their ability, their race, um, and onward. So these are all kinds of decisions that people make implicitly or explicitly that have some pretty big implications on uh, what it means to be in that particular space. As a uh, African-American male who's always been the tallest person in just about any room I've been in, uh, the way that the decisions that people made for me in uh, basketball at times made me feel like that uh, – I was, I was, this, my body was this way so that I should perform in basketball. Um, so that kind of narrowed the way that I might have seen myself and how others saw me. So this has big implications, right, for the way that people see themselves in, in the world. And so I think we, Tom and I were thinking about uh, challenging people to think about those as decision making processes that are bigger than just, um, singular kind of moments in, in in time in sport-based youth development programs but shape but that shape the way that people see themselves and see others and so they can be moral decisions that have bigger implications for um, how we move about about the world in in public school settings yeah so my second to last question to you is about the different uh, sport-based youth development programs you highlighted. You wrote about five, and I'm curious, like, what went into writing that part? Why did you choose those one, uh, those specific programs? And can you just kind of give an, not a, necessarily an overview of each one, but just of like w that that section in that uh, in the chapter? Yeah. So there had been. It was apparent to us that in the literature there were. Um, specific programs that had a, a well-developed curriculum. They had been written about in some research journals, but more so some kind of professional publications and were available on websites and things like that and had received some support from funders and uh, really had made themselves relevant. So um, the most salient example for me was the first T. Uh, they have a in-school curriculum for elementary physical education and they have uh, a variety of after-school types of approaches. And they have a pretty well-developed uh, curriculum that, that teaches life skills and has been evaluated by uh, Maureen Weiss from the University of, of Minnesota. So what we wanted to do was kind of lay out these five examples and explain how they've interpreted uh, 
sport-based youth development into program, but really linked it up to a specific uh, activity, whether it was golf or baseball or, or running for girls, um, to kind of convey the life skills in a way that really integrates with their particular uh, sport. I think the five programs were really, they're not, it's not an exhaustive list, but they were really salient examples of the way that sports-based youth development uh, has been implemented, but then also how these are clearly uh, representative of this new conversation on social-emotional learning, that you can read these as SEL types of programs that are uh, contributing to that conversation as well. So finally, I think we hope that those examples help to bridge this conversation between sport-based youth development to social-emotional learning so that people who pick up this book and say, you know, let me try try to integrate some of this SEL stuff into my PE program uh, can look to examples that aren't necessarily brand new but really have some track record uh, of success in this SBYD context. Yeah, and I've, I've noticed that with with our after-school program, the REACH program, it's it's been interesting because, you know, we started in 2015 in, in New York in a basketball program, and we talked about we want to focus on character. And so character mm-hmm. for us was very loosely defined. We talked about life skills and what it means to grow up in this community and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we've been playing with this word character. And as I've been reading this book and listening to more and more like presentations on SEL and looking into Castle, like I see that what we're talking about is social emotional learning, but not completely. Right. So like, yeah. I'm not, I'm doing parts, but I'm missing like two sections that if, if somebody would say, well, do you do this? I could probably say yes, but it's not explicit. It's not something that I that's written down into the curriculum that we're actually you know pushing, and uh, Missy Parker said on the on her podcast she said uh, that it what there were skills to be taught, not hope to be caught, and that stuck with me. I was like, yeah, yeah. I think that there are a lot of things that I I have done in the past that I just like assume or I hope that they're going to get this message. And it's not me stopping the game or stopping the activity and saying, do you see what's happening? Like, how yeah. would you feel in this situation? Let's talk about this. Let's have, you know, a restorative circle and have this discussion and break that down. So uh, I, I thought it was great that you highlighted those uh, those five different programs and they were they were really good examples. So um, for those of you who haven't read the read the book, um, they're, they're good descriptions of what maybe you can take certain things from. But I will, I will finish off with my last question, which I'm asking everybody, uh, which you could take anywhere you want and answer it however you want. But why SEL and why sports-based youth development? Um, so I teach a class on sport-based youth development, a uh, graduate class at UNCG, and we start off by looking at the history of it. And we read an article from McCloy from the 1930s, and it's on character development in physical education. And we read, uh, I can't remember the names, but there's an article somewhere around the 50s that we take a look at 
and there's others in the 80s and then onward into the 90s that are having the same conversation about character development that you talked about. Um, so this has always been a conversation in physical education. It's always been a claim that we've hung our hat on. It's been dressed up in different ways over the years. Uh, I think today what we're seeing is uh, the move, the movement before social emotional learning was really a little bit more isolated to a sport and physical activity context and was not being more broadly embraced. Today we have the social emotional learning movement that is embraced by policymakers. There are several states who have passed social and emotional learning standards. Uh, you've seen uh, at the level of Congress, uh, they are interested in funding social emotional learning and education. Uh, we're seeing youth development outcomes where it's clear that we need to provide more social emotional learning in schools. Uh, and then CASEL has this framework that really has some resonance uh, in, in education widely. So I think physical education is now in a place where we can raise our hand and say, hey, you know, look over here. We really like what we see in this SEL movement, and we have something to offer. We can do it in physical education. We are now positioning ourselves to connect with that conversation through the CASEL model, but also to say that, you know, we're not new to the game either. Like, we've got a whole literature base. Uh, we've positioned ourselves in different discourses, uh, but we are, we're at the table in the social-emotional conversation. And I think educators with education from the, the field more broadly. So, uh, you know, school principals, general education researchers would do well to bring physical education into this conversation on social-emotional learning if they're serious about uh, realizing these outcomes and how they're integrated into the curriculum. So that's my, my hope going forward is that I, I really have never seen uh, the level of interest from the big players at the big table in sport-based youth development or SEL as we see today. And now we're in this pandemic that we have not yet had time to reflect on and think about what are we going to need to do to help youth uh, recover from this and to rethink education spaces. So I don't know what that means and what this is going to look like five or 10 years from now, but certainly we're in a space where there is an opportunity to be more thoughtful about integrating social emotional learning and physical education and hopefully for physical education to be reconsidered uh, as an area of critical importance in this space for uh, education more generally. So um, that's my, my thoughts. And I, I really appreciate folks who are taking a look at this, this book uh, and, and for, to Paul and Kevin for, bringing this conversation forward through the edited textbook. Yeah, and, and I really do hope that people, PE has so much to offer. Scholars working on this area have so much to offer for general education, for school climate, um, school ecology. I, I think there's so much, uh, and you're right on. Um, uh, Michael, thanks for coming on, or thanks for coming back to the podcast. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And um, the book is going to be out um, July 1st through uh, Jones and Bartlett. And you can find a lot of information on the Shape America website because it's one of the Shape America publications. 
Um, and then uh, we have a couple more podcasts coming out in the next couple weeks before uh, launch date. So uh, thanks for tuning in. And Michael, thanks for coming on. Thank you.